Hello and welcome to another episode of The Growth Podcast. I am your host, Matt Bellotti, as always, and I am excited today to have two guests from a company called Nation Builder. Today, I have Annie Mossbacher and Jason Meir. They are the VP of Customer Engagement and Digital Marketing. That's Annie. And Jason is the Director of Product there. And I'm really excited to have the two of them. Today, we're going to dig into something that I had connected with Annie on when we went through a program called FreeForge. And it's all about creating a new use case for an existing customer base. And I'm really, really excited to dig in because we haven't really touched this topic before. So Annie and Jason, thank you much, so much for, for joining today. So glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. So uh, maybe you could both give a quick intro on yourselves and then we'll jump into the topic from there. Yeah, totally. So I am uh, Vice President of Customer Engagement and Digital Marketing at Nation Builder. I oversee our digital marketing team, uh, which is all of our uh, top of the funnel customer acquisition and growth marketing efforts, along with our customer support, customer onboarding, customer engagement efforts. So really everything related to engaging with our customers, making sure they know how to use our product, know how to use it well, and all of our retention and engagement efforts. So I've been at the company for just about six years. My background is really in the social impact and nonprofit space. So I was really attracted to Nation Builder in that Nation Builder is very mission-driven. We work with a lot of customers in the political, advocacy, nonprofit space, really anybody that's looking to lead a community, move them to action. So it's been six incredible years working with a lot of our customers, helping them to do great work. That's great. Thank you. So I'm Jason Meir, Director of Product. I've been with Nation Builder for a little over seven years now. I've done just about everything at an early stage SaaS company that you can think of but currently focused on leading our product organization and resource organizations in you know, solving problems for, for those customers that Annie's team does such a good job of activating and helping uh, find and, and grow their communities. Probably my background is a little bit more from the political side. I was high school organizer for Barack Obama back in 2008 and then uh, led my DC area upbringing into uh, a very short political career, mostly from the communications and tech side of things. So it's really a, a natural growth into working in this space. And it's been, it's been an awesome ride, particularly with Annie uh, alongside. So we've, we've had a lot of great collaboration over the years. So it's, it's awesome to talk about one of the more exciting things that I think that we've done in a while on today's podcast. Yeah. And it is great too, because we have both of your perspectives and you call out that you collaborate really well. So I'm excited to, to kind of hear that in action. So, so Annie, why don't you tee up what it is that the challenge was that you saw and, and kind of the high level of, of what it is that you did moving forward. And then we can dig in from there. Totally. So Matt, I know when we met, one of the things that we sort of connected over was when we talked about churn and that being a problem that, that all SaaS companies face. And so Nation Builder has a little bit of a unique challenge in that one of the largest sort of subsets of our customer base are companies and organizations that use us in the political campaigning space. And so that's both here in the United States and internationally. And so anytime that we talk about churn and our churn rate, there's always like a giant asterisk around it and that we say, okay, so... <laughs> Churn, yes, that's a SaaS metric. Um, we have a little bit of a unique story around it in that we do have this large subset of our customers that do have very cyclical usage of a tech stack. Working in the campaign space, you always have people that are you know, working towards a specific election date. 
Um, they boot up their election tech at whatever point they do, but they're working towards a specific date. Typically at that point, they shut down their tech stack. They no longer need that infrastructure. Um, so not all of our customers are, are in the political campaigning space, but a good number are. That's always been a really large subset of our, our base for the 10 years that we've been around. Um, so we do look at a blended churn number, meaning churn across our entire customer base. But we also really do look at that broken down between our political customer set and our non-political customer set. Political customer churn is always going to be higher because of that organic churn that's happening um, very cyclically dependent upon what that election cycle looks like. So that's always something that we look at very specifically. Um, we had kind of have to look at our engagement strategies differently uh, because of that, that natural and organic churn. So over the years, um, as we've looked at that and we look at the stats around those political customers that use Nation Builder for their elections, close down their accounts, uh, a lot of those customers end up coming back and returning to Nation Builder to use us for their next election. Consultants will come to Nation Builder to use us for another one of their clients who's booting up a campaign uh, or kind of coming back to us for another election that they're running. And so we've had a, a service that they can use where they can either choose to completely shut down uh, their account with us, which means that the account is no longer active, they can no longer access it, or they can choose to pause their account, which means they're no longer paying us, they can't access the account, but they could come back at a date in the future um, and boot it back up exactly where it was. Their database of records, um, their website, all of their materials are accessible to them if they want to start paying us. It's just effectively on pause. So that's something that we've offered since the beginning. And we've seen over the years, so many customers have chosen to come back, whether in a few months, a few years, for that next election uh, to unpause their account and use Nation Builder again. So we really wanted to explore what that might look like if we kind of dove into understanding that customers saw that as a service, saw that as a value. It was very important to us that we allow people to kind of keep everything on pause in that static nature, knowing the cyclical nature of politics, but seeing if there was a way that we could kind of understand if there were additional features, additional values we could offer, but to remain in a business relationship with those customers. At the time when customers paused, we were no longer in that business relationship that was considered churn. And so as a result, we were seeing those really high spikes in churn. So that just really opened up a dialogue for us last year around, is there a new or different use case that we might be able to create a new plan, a new package, even a new product or service that we could really kind of deploy to that specific customer base, recognizing over you know, nearly a decade of service that this is something that those customers could use. Yeah, and I love this because you have this interesting, unique challenge as a business that not necessarily all SaaS companies have, but some may in some shape or form. Uh, and, and you took this approach to ask this question of, all right, what is a new use case that we can offer here? What is the, what is the value that we could provide? I would love to dig into what that process looked like to figure out, all right, you know, you're asking yourselves this question. All right, we have this weird problem. Uh, we think we can answer it with another use case. Uh, where do you go from here? This is the point that uh, products and research really dug in. And at the close of the last election cycle, we sort of broke down our customer, our our political customer base across the way that we classify our use cases, campaigns, parties. Uh, also advocacy organizations that are oriented around the same election cycle, just to get a diversity of, of op opinions from a qualitative perspective, how people 
actually do things in the off cycle and learn some really interesting insights. Um, one being that part of the, the cyclical churn is actually campaign financial compliance driven because uh, many of these organizations literally not spend money in off cycle times. So even if we provided a specific use case, we'd have to have a pricing strategy that would allow them to make the payment in a time when they were actually actively campaigning. So that was one really important insight that we saw across all of the use cases. But there was a couple other key jobs that we identified from folks that they have in the off-cycle period. Uh, and what, what was really important that I, that I definitely want to call out here is that in those interviews, we were asking more about uh, what people had done in previous campaign cycles when they were using the product uh, or using other systems rather than what they would like to do. Uh, I mm -hmm. think that's just like a good practice in general uh, to, to make sure that you're orienting around what people have actually done uh, rather than what they say they might do. It's, it's just a better predictor of their future behavior. Uh, we are all creatures of habit. So within that sort of four main uh, sort of like user stories emerged of things that people would want to do in those cycles, off-cycle periods, uh, accessing their data for analysis. So a lot of campaign managers will want to understand where they fell short or, or did well in particular demographics and want to analyze that to prepare for the next campaign. Uh, there's also this need of keeping volunteer and supporter information up to date, uh, even though they're not actively volunteering for you now, you may get a new phone number, a new email address, and you just want to keep them up to date and, and updated in whatever database you're using to, to track those folks. Another really important use case is more on sort of like the public uh, web presence side of things. You'll see most candidates keep up some sort of public website if not talking about the issues that they care about for the this campaign, certainly like putting up a presence about other things that they're participating in in the community so that they have that established presence of, of being connected to the community. And then giving some opportunity for people to communicate with the candidate in the off cycle so that you may have a new volunteer who's interested in the community work you're doing in between the cycle if you're not an elected or if they're connecting with some of the, the civic work that you're doing if you are currently an incumbent. So really sort of like letting people communicate with you and then putting a basic set of things out there about uh, what you're interested in. So cool. We sort of identified these these common jobs and uh, we... Go ahead. Jump in here. So, uh, can you just give a little context of how did you identify these jobs? Was it like set up a ton of user interviews with the people in these pause states? I, I know you're asking uh, people what they were doing in prior. Was this like a, a bunch of surveys you sent out? Uh, yeah. So at this stage, it was just just qualitative interviews with with people doing. So there's no there's no actual uh, switch in this case. So I'm I'm a big practitioner of jobs to be done. And therefore, I would caution that it's probably like not the ideal case for that. But just interviewing them in that particular mindset of the actual things that they were trying to get done was really how we approached it. So we talked to people who were both first-time Nation Builder customers, people who had been using the product for, for a long time, just to get the diversity of insights from things that were very product specific about their workflows versus like the kinds of things that we would have done in, in other cases. So really got perspective across long timelines of different campaigns that they participated in. That's great. And how structured was the approach? Because I, I there's there's two two schools of thought when you're trying to figure this kind of stuff out. It's one, 
show up with a very regimented, like, here are the questions I'm going to ask and all that. And then there's the other that I prescribe to in those earlier phases where you just sit down with someone and just ask a bunch of questions and kind of go from there. I think in this particular case, you're just trying to get some really early insights and and get people comfortable. So I like the approach that you just described that where uh, at this point, we're just trying to flesh out the personas a little bit. So we're really just trying to get the person talking about what excites them. And in the case of people who are campaign kids doing data entry, you'd be surprised that getting folks talking about being in a campaign office and what it's like to wind down a campaign. Those are often really like very vibrant moments for people. So it wasn't that hard to get get folks really excited about telling their personal stories at this stage. But we definitely transitioned from there to a little bit more of a regimented approach. So again, I mentioned we had sort of broken down across these use cases. And we used a similar approach in sampling our existing customer base for a survey as the next step. And we used a survey type called conjoint analysis. There's a couple of these different um, techniques you can use where you're trying to evaluate cool, we've heard this use case uh, desired in our, in our target market. How much would people actually be willing to pay for that? Because we're trying to figure out how to peg this new paused plan against our active plans. What percentage? Is it a fixed amount? Do we want to sort of like come to market as like a percentage of our existing plans? Or is it uh, just like a completely new pricing approach? So we use conjoint analysis. And the way that that works is you basically within each of these four use cases, we talked about features that we might offer in terms of fully featured to not having anything in that use case at all and giving people options of getting this combination of those four use cases for this percentage of their existing cost and choosing between different options. And then that builds a profile of how willing they are to pay for each iteration of complexity within each particular use case. And we had some really interesting insights from that. In particular, if we were to include sort of a limited version of each of those jobs from what was available in the core product, customers were willing to pay two times as much as what we ultimately landed on for our ultimate pricing structure. There was actually like basically exactly the same sentiment for what we ultimately landed on and what would have been twice as much for exactly the same functionality. This was interesting because at that moment, I was like, okay, great. We can go to market with this higher cost and there would be there would be no uh, downside to us as a business. And it's just a limited example of our feature set uh, otherwise. So great, ready to go. Let's prototype this and put it into work. And it was actually the, here where we had a great moment of checking ourselves uh, based on the, the unique knowledge that each team brings to the business. So Annie, where you jump into the, into the mix and uh, where, where an insight comes from? Yeah, totally. I think this was a really helpful moment because, you know, we had approached the discovery really from the place of the desire to not necessarily impact our our revenue stats, but to impact our our churn and retention stats. So I think, you know, what Jason mentioned is we were all very surprised to hear that our customers were willing to pay a little bit more than we were anticipating, but not necessarily wanting to just dive right into, you know, eating that up, but really thinking about what was possible. And so when Jason kind of presented um, what we were learning from the survey and kind of what seems to be an option, we realized that though that was very appealing, it was really starting to kind of you know, overlap and, and touch very closely to one of our lower level packages. And so as we started to dig into that and really purely just through conversation, 
we realized there, there was a true potential of it beginning to cannibalize one of our lower level plans. One of the engagement challenges that we certainly continue to struggle with is people who are on kind of our lower level packages, which is related to a smaller feature set, kind of smaller capacity and usage stat, is getting people to use more and more of the features available to them, helping to increase the sophistication and the breadth of their usage, helping to you know, grow them into to higher level plans. So we do have a subset of customers um, that are using very baseline features that we try to engage more and more of, but that's always, I think, a challenge. And so I think I had a panic moment that Jason and I, you know, were like very engaged in around like, oh crap, if we offer this like, you know, supposed lowest level plan, this new use case, are we going to have a lot of customers who are already on those very low level usage plans that might just downgrade because Mm -hmm. they see that as a more appealing product for them? And so we really had to get into that around What's the reality of the customers that are currently on some of these packages and plans that we have? We don't want this new offering to cannibalize it. We want to create a new product, a new offering for customers who are currently not engaged with us at all. And so I think that's where we were able to get into some really rich conversation around we want to offer something new. We don't want it to cannibalize our current customer base. We know some of that may organically happen, but that's where we really had to get into the nitty gritty around. Um, our customers are telling us they might be willing to pay a little bit more, but we certainly don't want to have a whole deluge of contraction that happens when you know customers in, in our current base start to downgrade. And I think one thing to, to just piggyback off of that is that it was a really important moment to come back to first principles too, because you know one of the things that we really strongly believe in terms of how you best activate a supporter community. And one thing that we've always really pushed from an engagement perspective for candidates that are out of cycle is that it's important to actually continue to be out there and advocating for the things that you talk about, whether you're in office or you've, you've failed to win office, people are going to forget about the things that you care about. And you can sort of bust through the narrative of the politician only talking to people in the moment of needing their votes and for us to provide too much of a product that, that orients away from that is just also not like something that, that's aligned with how, how we really believe that, uh, that our customers should be, should be behaving. So it was, a, it was a good moment to like anchor back, okay, we have this business problem, but can we also filter it through the lens of how we think about our place in the world and, and what we want our customers to be doing to, to better engage their supporter communities? I think going into what ultimately was several months, if not a couple quarters as a business and as a leadership team and and really thinking about this and and the creation of this use case, having some of those guiding principles and higher order understanding of the problems we were solving as a company is ultimately what made this so successful. And I think absolutely, Jason, kind of understanding some of the principles that were guiding us, knowing that for us, this was solving a churn problem and not trying to gain sort of more revenue, we could have absolutely gone down a different path and made different choices and decisions. But having that that guiding light for us, I think, from the beginning was absolutely essential in the decisions that we made. And ultimately, what we can talk about is, is how successful it's been. But we could have 100% kind of pivoted and, and made different decisions based on some of what we learned along the way. But I could not be happier with, with how this all has gone both from an internal process perspective, but in, in the decisions that we've made and, and how it's impacted the business. Yeah, that's that's great because I you really see the tension 
between, all right, well, we could get more revenue out of this, but there, it could cannibalize. Like, can, can you walk us through how that conversation goes down? Because I, I imagine it's messy, right? I, I've seen these kinds of things before and, um, and, and the, the first principles certainly help, but like, how do you get to the point where you, you like stepped away with, all right, here's how we move forward, right? Because I feel like a lot of growth teams and product teams and companies out there get to this point and then it's it's like, all right, well, where do we go from here? Does the CEO just tie break a decision? Do, well, just which one's going to give us more revenue? I, like, what does that look like? It's a great question. I, I wonder if, Annie, you might have a different perspective on this than, than I did. I think where uh, the way that it really ultimately went down was that, you know, I actually at the time was, was the lead PM on the project. Uh, and I think my, my product design, uh, counterpart and I had really designed what was ultimately a use case that was a little, that would have allowed for this more like forever campaigning type of use case that we sort of envisioned. And the more that, People in, our, in the leadership team asked the question, you know, that was never the intention of this. We were never intending to do that. We were intending to continue to allow people to, to maintain a basic relationship with us so that they can understand the value proposition of our product. But it was really in those sort of reviews that we have of prototypes with the executive team, including Annie, that those hard questions were asked and we, and we had the, the sort of like clear business goal plus the use case research that we had to tie together there and say, hey, seems like what we originally set out to do here was one thing and the design that we've arrived at might not actually do that. I think we have the trust in place to, to just acknowledge that that was exactly correct. I don't know if I could pinpoint it any more directly than that. It was, it was sort of just like, hey, this doesn't seem like the best solution for what we were really trying to, to go for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that that definitely played a part in it. I think another kind of vector into the decision-making is we had a hypothesis that if we, you know, increased the, the price or the cost of this, that fewer people would opt in. Whereas if the cost was lower, we would have more. And we obviously pulled some numbers. And at the point, we had more customers on our databases that were in that paused state than we actually had active customers. So we were sitting with this like massive number of these paused customers, knowing that a big number of them were at some point, we didn't know when, but at some point we're going to come back to us. And some number of them we believed would find great value out of this offering. And so we just believed that it was going to be more valuable to us and that we would do right by and be of service to this large number of prospective return customers if we could offer them something and by you know, potentially losing out on a little bit of revenue. And we're talking about relatively small numbers here. This is like you know the most affordable of all of our plans, mm -hmm. certainly. That by just providing them with the service and getting back into a business relationship with them, that our theories and our hypotheses were that that would be ultimately more beneficial to the business to get back into that business relationship for the long-term LTV, for our ability to kind of be in an engaging MRR and upsell and um, engagement conversation with those customers from more of a growth space than a, a win back conversation. And so kind of just getting them back into our customer base was for us the thing that just seemed so much more essential and that that was the driver. So, you know, we didn't know because we had never done anything like this before, but to us, the cost benefit of, do we want to try to increase this incrementally by getting and recouping a little bit more revenue per month or 
do we just want to get them back into this business relationship? And we just always kept coming back to the ladder. From an engagement perspective, I, I touched on this a moment ago, but I think it's important. And, and what I was always the most excited about, I mean, I think I said this to Jason like every day, because my, my role overlaps a little bit between customer engagement and, and marketing. Like I want to be able to be in communication with these customers responsibly and excitedly about features that are available to them, strategies that are available to them, expertise that we have to offer to them. And that looks really different when we are engaging with customers in an upsell and an upgrade and a growth conversation. It's very different than a win-back type Mm -hmm. of campaign and engagement. And so being able to do that is also just so much more exciting and looks, looks very, very different. And so I think that was another component about how we wanted to be in relationship with these different types of customers versus non-customers that we really wanted to experiment with and that ultimately has really been exciting and successful. So I think just again, continuously going back to that, that decision point, it honestly wasn't difficult. <laughs> we kind of constantly came back to it and certainly wrestled with it a little bit. But for us, it just, it made, you know, a lot of sense to, to be in this for engagement, retention over uh, revenue. Yeah. And I, what I like about this is it shows one of the facts that it worked out shows that uh, this is one of these decisions where you either go short-term or long-term. And I feel like a lot of growth minded people or growth teams wind up feeling pressured in that they should go for the short-term thing, right? Because we have to justify the work that we're doing and show the impact and show the numbers, right? And in this case, the the long-term approach really, really worked out for you. So I love to define like what it was that you landed on, like this is the offering. And then let's talk a little bit about, you know, here's how it's been working. You've been, you know, running this thing for six months. I'd love to dig into that. Yeah. So I think that the big thing, if you go back to those four original cases, the things that looked most like the usage of people on our, on our lower tiered paid plans was keeping information up to date in the database of people and providing ways on, on the public website for the candidate or the, or the party or the, or the advocacy organization to collect insight from supporters. Those are the behaviors that we were most worried about looking too similar. So Really, the, the and this was actually kind of nice from the interviews as well because it, it was very clear that the the top use case that people had was maintaining some sort of basic web presence, and it, it actually was not an offering we really had in Nation Builder at that point. Our websites really are oriented around this sort of like collecting petition signatures and donations. It's all about the the action orientation, but just putting up a simple landing page that talks about the issues that you care about and maintains that professional web presence was like the number one thing that came up. Uh, and it was not something that we had offered. So we ended up with a, with an offering that was mostly about getting access to your data for analysis in its frozen state and presenting this, this way of putting up a really easy, responsive landing page so that folks can know what you're about in your off cycle uh, and in, in your off cycle t- work. And it's been really, 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 really nice to see the results come in. We're, so within, within really like two months, uh, we saw pretty significant movement on that blended churn number Andy was talking about before, mostly driven by extreme gains on, on the political churn side of things. And we're currently sustaining about a 29% year-over-year blended standard churn decrease, largely due to the efforts of the plan and also you know, Annie's team being just incredible on the engagement side with, with all of the experimentation they're doing there. 
to kind of allude to the long-term play and the short-term play, you know, the revenue side of this is is still very small percentage of our total MRR, but because over 80% of uh, people in the plan are in these cyclical use cases, we're queuing up lots of experiments to do those renewal and, and upsell conversations for both people who can operate off-cycle and for those who can't operate off-cycle, queuing up the drip campaigns in advance of when they'll reactivate to make sure that, that we're taking best advantage of that. Annie, I don't know if you want to talk more about some of the plans there, but uh, yeah, the, the numbers have really gone in our favor. We're, we're really happy with the results. Yeah, I think that the big thing to underscore there is it's been just such an exciting year and such an exciting moment, I think, for the company to be able to celebrate that with all the efforts from the product and engineering teams that worked to create this and to, to launch it, and then everything that we can do to support it from a customer-facing side. Um, so yeah, we've had a lot of like confetti celebrations <laughs> and staff meetings to be able to share the, the monthly churn stats, but we've definitely been able to not only hit, but exceed our churn targets every month since we launched this earlier in the year. So yeah, that, that 20% you know, standard blended churn decrease that we've been able to sustain every month has, has just been absolutely thrilling. So that's been the big highlight for us this year and opens us up to, again, a lot of opportunity to then focus on engaging with those customers to ultimately grow them into higher level plans when the time is right, when they're prepared to kind of open back up to uh, more sophisticated usage when their election cycle comes back or when they're ready to, to take a step up. But it's been a really exciting year. That's awesome. That's quite an improvement. And did you have a financial model somewhere or a, like a model that said, we're going to get a result of about this much? Or was this like way beyond kind of what you had expected? Like, what, what did this look like compared to what your expectations were? So um, we did we did have a target um, in in Q1 and in Q2 we surpassed that target and when I shared with my CEO kind of the first couple of months that that we surpassed what the target was you know she congratulated me and, and we had a staff meeting big celebration and in that she said. And in congratulations of this, we are going to even further reduce the, the target of our, of our churn stat. So congrats, and it's even more aggressive. And so that was, that was what we sort of shared at the midpoint of the year. So yeah, we, we, did, we did set you know, our targets that were certainly within the business model related to the, the launch of this new use case and a lot of other retention uh, tactics that, that you know, we had in play throughout 2018 and, and moving into 2019. But we were able to... Um, again, not only meet them for the first couple of months at this launch, but truly surpass them. Um, we set a new, more aggressive target at the, the middle of the year. And similarly, we've been able to, to even surpass those. So yeah, the celebration was more assertive targets, which is very nation buildery in all of our you know competitive nature. <laughs> that's, that's very much how we operate here. But we have been able to, to surpass what we've set, both as a result of this use case and a lot of other tactics that we've had across the board. But it's been um, we've been, I think, I can say this, Jason, you can chime in, wildly um, you know, impressed by, by how well this has worked out, which again, I think is a testament to being so aligned across the business with what we wanted to do um, to be of service to our customers, looking at what we knew was going to be an offering that they needed and, and providing them with that in a really clean and clear way. I think the only other thing that I would say that's that's been such a 
awesome outgrowth of the collaboration on this project is a series of additional follow-on projects that where the customer engagement team really served as subject matter experts um, in helping us set the targets for where we could expect uh, different product releases to achieve specific gains for the business. And in some cases, being a little bit of uh, temporary, putting on the temporary PM hat where necessary. Annie's team has really like grown over the year. And this was really just like a, a good uh, launching off point for that work. Um, so yeah, just it's, it's a love fest over here between the customer engagement <laughs> and, and product organizations. Uh, lots of overlap. And we don't really have, a, we hadn't had a, a growth specific team. Um, until until really collaboration on projects like this uh, allowed members of Annie's team through their work through Reforge and Annie's stewardship really starting to incubate that growth organization within the customer engagement team. So it's just been a it's been a fun year for for that particular metric and that team's efforts. That is awesome. You love to hear that a, a happy ending. Well, there's one other thing I want I want to dig into before before we wrap. You had this use case, right? Here's what we're going to do. Uh, here's what we're going to offer. Let's build it. Do you then just take that and email all your pause customers and say, Hey, you have this thing now who wants to opt in? Or was there, was there a gradual rollout? Was it, you know, only start offering this to people here forward, see how that goes for a month and then go back. Can you just walk through that? Cause I feel like that this is one of these parts where it doesn't really get talked about that much that often. And then you get in a scenario like that on a growth team or product team or, you know, whatever it might be. And then you think, all right, well, I, yeah, that sounds good. Do that thing. <laughs> We could do an entire other podcast all about this. So I will give you like the quick and dirty, but yeah, we, um, so as I mentioned, we did have a lot of customers who were in this paused state. So, um, a huge amount of, you know, our prep and, um, intentionality and how we wanted to roll this out really was about how did we want to announce it to our, our customers, especially those who were in the paused state. So we did a massive amount of kind of comms plan preparation around how to roll it out. Um, we did a series of emails um, and outreach to customers who were on the pause plan beforehand, letting them know about the offering, giving them a, a long tail of time to be able to either opt in to the new uh, paid pause offering or um, to kind of opt out and, and choose to shut down their account. So we did have you know, a good number of people who opt in to the new offering, a good number of people that said, no, I think I'm okay. I'll return if and when I want to. Um, but we did have quite a number of touches, emails, a lot of internal coordination around people who had previous relationships with those customers and might have had some context around how and in what way we needed to kind of communicate that with them. Um, a big set of nuance around this is um, we have a lot of consultants that are the points of contact with NationBuilder and are the account owners, uh, but may not necessarily be the people who are now, years, months later, associated with the campaign. So there's a lot that goes into who's the account owner, who's you know, remaining with the candidate or the campaign still associated with that organization. And so, um, again, could do a whole other, <laughs> a whole other podcast with this because to your point, that sort of outreach, um, trying to encourage people to opt in, making sure that we're communicating effectively. That was a massive, massive undertaking and one that we took very, very seriously. So, um, we learned a lot from that. It did take quite a bit to do the coordination because it was thousands and thousands and thousands of customers and users that we communicated with. Um, but also ultimately um, a big part of what we needed to do to make sure that we were migrating people into the offering uh, where appropriate. 
That's great. And one one last thing for people that are listening to this, and uh, I'm going to say there's there's two two main groups of people. Pardon me, listener, if you're not in this group. Um, there's some people that are probably thinking, all right, well. We should probably do a new use case now. This sounds like something that we should do. And then another group saying, all right, we're kind of in the process of this right now, or I know we're going to undertake this soon. What other things should we know? Do you have any advice for either of those two groups? So I think like this opens up a whole a whole other podcast. So you'll have to have us back. <laughs> I think figuring out where you do feature differentiation across your plan types in a SaaS model is it's such a big question that that requires a whole bunch of other approaches. So what I what I would say generally on that particular question, I start from a first principle. I, just, I feel like I've said that three times now, unfortunately, of how you're differentiating. And in this case. We were differentiating on the complexity of the operation of any given customer all the way up the stack. So remembering that the pause plan was just an example of a less complex organization because in in an off season, uh, you're going to spin down from having multiple people campaigning and therefore you're going to really probably just have like one person managing the data and, and managing that, that landing page. Thinking about how your tiers break down and and starting from the personas of people that would use each plan of your of your product and then the growth pattern of upselling them is actually about improving their ability to execute as an organization and so it's really nice to have that sort of alignment between the growth of how much someone pays you and how complex and and effective their organization is is becoming so because we had the opportunity to think about a, a different type of complexity for the organization, it made a lot of sense for us. Um, tacking it on um, in the case where there is no differentiation within how you're currently differentiating probably isn't going to be very successful. Great. Any Anything else that either of you want to throw in before I wrap? No? All right. Well, this was fantastic. The two people that work on a team together dynamic for the podcast works great because then I barely have to say anything. <laughs> great. Well, thank you both so much, Annie and Jason, for, for joining today. I, I learned a bunch. I know our, our listeners did as well. For all of you that are listening, as always, I'm going to give my same spiel. If you have any questions, feedback, ideas for topics, whatever it might be, my email's mad at drift.com. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Annie, Jason, thank you again, and we will catch you on the next episode. Thanks. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks. Oh, and one more thing before I go, because you're a listener. So Drift has its hypergrowth conference coming up in San Francisco on November 18th, and this is 20. 19. So far this year, we've had one in London and Boston, and they've been an amazing time. If you're interested, you're going to get a discount code. So you can go to hypergrowth.drift.com and sign up with the code GROWTH99. So all capitals, GROWTH99 with no spaces. And if you happen to be listening to this at a future date, November 18th is already passed. No worries. If it is now 2020 and you're trying to come to the hypergrowth in 2020 or beyond, uh, just send me an email to matt at drift.com and we'll figure something out for those hypergrowths if the growth 99 code doesn't work then. All right. Thanks so much.